Well, welcome back to the Hunt Back Country podcast, or should I say recast. This is part two of our conversation with Ryan Kleckner, which first aired a couple of years ago, but we're revisiting because it's just so stinking good. Also, before we dive into that conversation, as I mentioned in the previous episode, part one with Ryan, this month's podcast giveaway here in September of 2019 is with Leupold Optics. We're giving away a VX5 HD rifle scope, which is a fantastic scope that I personally use that I'm taking to Alaska here in a week or so. And it's something I've been shooting for months and months and just honestly, I love it. So if you want to get in on that, your chance to win this rifle scope, just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. Look for that giveaway link. It takes just a couple of seconds. All right, if you guys heard part one, you know how good this is and what treat you're in for with part two with Ryan. You know, it's not every day that we rebroadcast an episode, but this stuff's truly so good, we wanted to get it back out there. Here's part two. Hope you enjoy it. Well, let's start with uh, some kind of listener questions. Um, these weren't something that we solicited since the first episode we did with you, but just we've thrown some teasers out in the midst of recording this series and have gotten some feedback on what guys want to hear. And, you know, a couple things when I saw these questions would just love to hear from you, someone with your vast experience. And the first one is what are some cheap um, and or easy improvements that can be made to an average rifle scope package? Um, So whether that's a guy buying his own rifle and scope or literally buying like a package deal, but think more of like on the budget lines, um, hunting setup, what are some cheap and cheap and easy improvements that can be made for accuracy? Well, first, thanks for writing in questions, guys. I, uh, you can write them through these guys, or if you want to reach out to me, do it. I, I probably average a question a day and I try to answer every single one because I know there's going to be a day where I don't get questions. <laughs> so I'm, I might as well take the time to answer them and enjoy it while I have them. Uh, I get this question a lot, probably my most asked question. And the answer might offend uh, everybody, but it's the truth is take your scope off of your gun and mount it the right way. So most of you have either had the scope mounted on the gun from the factory, mounted on the gun from your gun dealer or whoever set the gun up for you, or you did it yourself. And you did it just by trial and error. You knew the scope needed to go on the top of the gun. You need you knew you needed it to go in the rings. You know, you mounted on the scope, you wanted to you zeroed the rifle, but without ever taking the time to figure out how to get the scope and the rifle to fit you, you're never going to get the performance that you really want. You know, so I, I talk about, or I like to analogize this to a race car driver. You take the best race car driver in the world and you give him a car where the seat and the mirrors and the pedals aren't adjusted for him. He's not going to be able to get the performance of the car that he wants. Well, the same is true for a rifle. If you take somebody who really knows how to shoot, but have the scope adjusted improperly for them so the rifle doesn't fit, they're, they're not going to get the results that they, they want nor expect. So most of you really take the scope off your gun and start over with what I'm telling you now. So take the scope off completely. Take the rings off the base completely. Uh, for some of you, even take the base off the rifle. And when you mount the base, make sure you're mounting the base on the receiver. If there's any slack at all, you've got to mount the base with this as far forward as it can get. Because when the gun recoils, when it fires, 
the scope, the rings, and the base all move relatively forward compared to the rifle. What really happening is, is the scope is holding still when the rifle is coming back, but it, it relatively is moving forward on that receiver. So you move the base forward, you screw it down. If you have a torque wrench, you can get it to the right torque. I, I like 65 inch pounds. Use some blue Loctite if you have it. Blue Loctite is the removable Loctite. So you tighten your base down and then you take each screw out one by one and you put half of a drop of blue Loctite on it and torque it back down. And when you put your rings and your scope on, you're actually going to want to lay on the rifle straight behind the rifle in the prone if you can. That's because that's usually the hardest position for most people to get in. And we talked about that last podcast. But you go ahead and lay in the prone and rest your head on the rifle like you're taking a nap. I really will have people, a right-handed shooter, I'll have them lay down with their hands crossed underneath their head and they'll have them lay their head on their hands with their head facing left. So their right ear is down on their hands and their elbows are out to either side. And then I'll bring the rifle into where they're laying and have them lift their head straight up and then straight back down the rifle and lay the complete weight of their head and their cheek on the buttstock and then have them open their eyes. So this entire time their eyes are closed have them get in the natural position and then open their eyes and move the scope until they can see clearly through the scope. So many of you might have the scope too far back, too far forward, too high, who knows what direction it's gonna be mounted. Getting it lined up exactly where your eye can see. And you can tell by the scope shadow when you see that black ring around the scope. And you move the scope until that black you know, fuzzy ring is gone. And then, and only then, tighten the scope rings and the scope down Again, if you have any slop in your scope rings in the base, make sure that the scope is slid all the way forward before in you know, whatever ring or groove you have it lined up in before you tighten it down, because that's what's going to want to shift anyway under, under recoil conditions. Once you get that set up, then taking the time to, to adjust your ocular focus. Have you guys ever dealt with that at all? Mm-hmm. All right. So that, that ocular focus is that, that ring that's closest to your eye that adjusts on the scope. And when you adjust that, that's really the only thing that's adjusting your eye's ability to focus on the reticle. So I suggest using a white piece of paper and holding it, you know, six inches to a foot in front of the scope. That way you're not tempted to focus on anything but the reticle. And you can lay with this natural body position, your full weight, your head on the scope in in a natural position, looking through the scope and seeing only the reticle. You can turn that ocular focus to to see if the reticle is clear. And if you have a friend here, this is a really great spot to have a friend help. As you have a friend, turn that ocular focus while your eyes are closed, multiple turns in one direction or the other. And then they have you open your eye again and tell you whether it's better or worse. Not whether it's clear or not, just simply better or worse. Then you close your eyes again. Either you or your friend turn it a couple more directions and open your eyes again and ask yourself or have your friend ask you better or worse. And you keep turning both directions until you find the sweet spot where the reticle is the clearest. Once you get to that spot and once you get the scope set up properly, your shooting is going to just fundamentally be better with that rifle. So despite what you expected to have as an answer, which is, 
you know, recrowning, new trigger, new chambering, new anything. Just getting the gun set up so it fits you is going to make you so much better at shooting that rifle than, than anything you can actually do to the rifle. Yeah. I've had rifles in the past where I have struggled to um, get the same sort of, you know, position, the same sort of um, experience through the scope when going from, like, prone to standing or what have you. Is that just a matter of that scope being mounted incorrectly, or is it something that I'm doing as I'm moving position with my cheek weld or my head as I'm changing shooting positions? Any insight there? Yes, it's, it's more the latter. So... When the scope is set up for me perfectly in the prone, it's not going to be work for me as well as it should when I'm sitting on a bench, for example. So unfortunately, your head changes position as you change positions. So in a hunting scenario, I would still set it up in the prone the best I could, but I would always double check off a bench position because it really will change. It's your head position. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. All right, super. Now, start at low power. So you're setting up your scope. Keep it on the lowest power possible if it's a variable power scope. Because as you tune the position of the scope in, high power is much more sensitive than low power. So get it set up in low power in the prone. And then get in the position you're most likely to be in hunting. Turn the scope up to high power and fine-tune its position. But I imagine that most of you all are going to need to move your scope forward. Forward. That's just my experience on how scopes need to be on rifles. And as long as you're somewhere in the right location, you're going to see drastically better results, even if it hasn't been fine-tuned perfectly. Okay, awesome. That's Yeah, I was not the answer that I was expecting. <laughs> Usually when <laughs> well, we think of improvements, we think of like yeah. gear or do this or add this oh, or, oh, you know. It's, it's the Indian, not the arrow. Exactly. Guys, it really is. You know, so here's a test. Go out to the range. And try and stare at a target for five minutes. And if you can do that without your neck or shoulders aching, I'd be surprised if you haven't set up your scope properly, or at least you're lucky. Most guys, when they sit on their rifle, can't hold that position for five minutes because they're straining their neck so much. I will stand behind sniper students, and as they're laying in the prone, I'll straddle them and reach down and grab their neck or grab their shoulders and see if they're flexing their muscles at all because any muscle control at all is not going to be helpful for shooting. I, mean, I think we talked about that last time. It's the more the rifle can do on its own, the better off it's going to be. The less muscle control you have, the better off it's going to be. So the more you can relax and just rest on the rifle, you're going to be great. The other thing is going to be a problem is if you guys have ever experienced this phenomenon, which, again, I'm betting you have, where you can see the reticle or you can see the target, but not both. Mm-hmm. Where you do that dance between focusing on the target and then you're like, well, the reticle's fuzzy. So you focus on the reticle and vice versa. That tells me that your ocular focus is not set up. So you, I, I mentioned you guys already. Sending in questions is great. I have a question this morning of a guy asking me what happens when he can't focus on his reticle. Well, that tells me that ocular focus isn't set up. And most folks out there that buy these scopes don't even know what that adjustment on their scope is for that ring that is closest to their eye is for. And that's to get your eye adjusted to that reticle. It's irrelevant the distance you're looking at. It's irrelevant to the target. That setting on that scope is to get your eye set up to that scope. And then you can use your target focus to get set up to the target. But if you have a problem seeing the target and the reticle clearly, then you have a problem of having your ocular focus set up properly. Hmm. 
Awesome. Super helpful. So, uh, next listener question. Uh, I'm ex- excited to hear your position on simply because there's so many stinking positions out there. If you start to do research, whether that be from uh, quote unquote experts or gun manufacturers, barrel manufacturers, all the above, everybody has an opinion on this and it's breaking in a new rifle barrel. What's your take? So, um, well, I don't know how, what I can say on this podcast. (laughs) I'll say, I'll say it's full of crap. Um, (laughs) when it comes to precision rifles, it's full of crap. So, Barrel break-in happens, but when you're buying a premium barrel, it's not needed. So let me qualify my first statement. There's three ways to rifle barrels. I, I forget if we talked about this already. Have, have we talked about this, guys? I don't believe so. Yeah, All right. So. The, there's three major ways to, to rifle a barrel. There's hammer forging, which is arguably the best way to rifle a barrel. There's button rifling, which is the cheapest and fastest, but quickly becoming one of the better ways to rifle a barrel. And then there's cut rifling. So essentially, all these barrels start off as just drilled tubes of steel. Okay, so there's there's a, a smooth hole drilled through a tube, which is going to be the barrel. And hammer forging involves a mandrel, so a, a mere image of what the barrel is going to look like as a rod. So the rifling sticks out from the barrel and the the barrel is slid over this mandrel and it is hammered with an insanely powerful and loud machine that physically forces the tube of steel around this mandrel. And when it's done, you end up with an impression of that rifling in the barrel. Okay. I hope that kind of makes sense. So it's hammered over and over as it rotates back and forth. And a raw hammer forged barrel has a really cool spiral hammering design on it. So, Ruger, for some reason, has decided to leave some of this hammer marks on their 1022 target barrels, which I think is just cool as hell. And you, you see these little tiny marks from this huge, powerful machine. And it just, again, it, it cold temperature hammers over and over, and it forces the barrel into this rifling shape. So that is long held as the best method for rifling a barrel. It, it, for sure, it's the longest lasting. And you'll see that it, you know denoted on barrels as cold hammer forged or hammer forged barrel. Yeah, I have some. Yeah, that's what we're looking at. There you go. So the button rifling used to be the kind of the redheaded stepchild of, of rifling a barrel, but it's fast becoming uh, the way to go because people are figuring how to do it. And it involves taking a button, which is about an inch, inch and a half long, uh, very hard material, usually a tungsten steel, and it has the rifling essentially cut into it. It has these little tiny grooves, and when it's screwed onto a rod and pulled through that barrel, which was nothing but a smooth hole, under insanely high pressure, it turns itself because the angles that are cut into this little button allow it to turn on its own path, and it will pressure push or cut the grooves into the barrel all the way through so that's another way of rifling a barrel and again it used to be the cheap way to do it but now it's, it's becoming the de facto way to do quality barrels you know savage most of their barrels for example are button rifled and they've surely figured out how to make it work the other method is cut rifling and cut rifling is actually machining actually getting a bit in there and truly cutting as if you're milling away something, the rifling in the barrel. Now, really high-end manufacturers like a Bartline barrel or cut rifled 
And although it offers more precision, you know, if I were to take a gauge and measure exactly what was done to the barrel, it doesn't necessarily guarantee better results. Now, the problem is button rifling can leave a rough barrel because you're, you're forcing this piece of metal through a barrel over and over for 100,000 times. And the faster these manufacturers can go, the better. So unfortunately, some of these factory rifles, if you walk into Cabela's and buy a rifle, you run the risk of getting a barrel that's essentially a corn cob on the inside. And you can actually feel how rough the patch smooth, you know, goes down this, this barrel or rubs against the barrels or smooth or not. And in those cases, yeah, breaking in a barrel matters. It, it is true, unfortunately. You buy a cheap enough rifle, your first group out of that barrel is not going to be near as good as your one, you know, 100th group out of the barrel. And that's just a, a function of the manufacturing defects the barrel are, are rubbed smooth because enough bullets have passed down the barrel to make, make the barrel smooth. But if you're buying a high-end barrel, if you're buying a high-end rifle, a, a quality rifle, there's no such thing as barrel break-in. And for, you, for those of you guys that want to shoot three rounds, then clean once, then shoot two rounds, and have some crazy recipe to make a magic barrel, if it makes you feel better, do it. But it's not really doing anything, you know, and maybe psychologically it makes your gun more accurate. You have more faith in your gun than by all means, who am I to stop you from doing it? But as long as you're buying a, a medium to higher end rifle, breaking in your barrel and doing a particular cleaning regimen is only just wasting your barrel. You know, some guys don't like to admit that their barrel is a replaceable item. So you buy a new truck you don't care as much what tires are going to need to be replaced. You know, just like the windshield wipers are going to need to be replaced. Well, same is true for a rifle. The, the barrel is not really the heart of the rifle. The receiver is. That barrel eventually is going to need replaced. It's kind of like the string on a bow. You know, archery guys would not obsess about strings near as much as rifle guys do about barrels when you know that eventually you're going to need to replace it anyway. What, so, uh... What price point? What price point quantifies low end, medium end, high end rifle for you? Great question. Um, I'm going to sound a little snobbish here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, under a thousand dollars is kind of a low end rifle. Okay. Um, so if let's say six hundred and under is definitely a entry level rifle. I won't call it low end entry level. You run the risk of your first group. Let's call it your first 50 rounds out of an under $600 rifle will be different than the next group out of your rifle. You know, but if you get past those rounds. Not to interrupt you, Ryan, I want to hear your thoughts on the, the ranges as well. But just to get back to the point, let's say those first 50 rounds, like, oh, okay, let's put it this way. You're going to be shooting a better group after 50 rounds because the barrel's broken yep. with, with this lower quality barrel. But. What you're saying is essentially it doesn't matter how you shot those first 50 rounds. Like it's not like yes. shoot once clean, shoot once clean for 10 rounds, then shoot, you know, five, three round groups, you know, with cleaning in between, et cetera, et cetera. And you reach 50 rounds versus just saying be sensible about, you know, shooting 15 rounds and keeping in mind that your groups might tighten up after 50 rounds, regardless essentially of how you shot them. 
Is that correct? You you said it way better than I did. Yes. So you get a new truck, and they tell you to get 500 rounds to 500 miles to break in the engine. Right. Right. They don't care that you drove half a mile then stopped and put it in park, or not. It's just a, a function of as the barrel gets worn in, it's going to get a little more accurate. And then a couple thousand rounds later, it's going to get a little less accurate. So essentially the barrel might break in, but in terms of some magical process to break the barrel in, it's not relevant. Agreed. Okay. I mean, if you want to do it though, so I'm, I'm very careful here. If you guys like doing the rain dance and sprinkle the magic sniper dust on your rifle, I mean, do it. I mean, it, it all comes down to what makes you confident when you need to shoot that shot at that elk at that in that mountain range at that time. And if you being confident makes it, you broke in the barrel a certain way, then by all means do it. But I'm, I'm telling you now, it's, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So continue. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but I just wanted to be clear on that before I forgot. Um, no, you're right. That's the perfect time to interrupt. It's, it's don't shoot one round clean, one round clean, one round clean, unless you want to. Then if that makes you happy, then who am I to stop you from doing that? Um, again, it, it comes down to your confidence in your ability to shoot that shot that matters. I, I can take almost any rifle off the shelf, no matter how good or bad it is, and put it in someone's hands that knows what they're doing and is confident about taking the shot they're taking. And they'll have better results than anything else. So if, if you like to break it in, by all means, break it in. I think you should take a new rifle Go out and shoot it. See what it can do. And as you shoot it, keep it clean. Work with the gun. And if you start getting better results, who knows if it's a function of you started with a bad barrel and you've started making it smooth, or who knows if you had bad fundamentals and you started getting better. Regardless, as you get more familiar with that rifle and you practice more and more, you're going to get better groups. But when we're talking hunting distances, we're talking one minute of angle. You know, one inch per 100 yards is phenomenal. You know, one minute of angle is a 10-inch group at 1,000 yards. Which hunter out there would not be happy with hitting a pie plate at 1,000 yards? Mm-hmm. So this barrel break-in process is, is for bench rest shooters that, that want to get this perfect barrel for shooting these fractions of a minute of angle group. And if guys that are hunters spent more time, uh, forgive me, but more time in the gym, <laughs> more time hiking mountains, you know, more time just just figuring out how to shoot from an unsupported position, they'd be way better off than worrying about what um, procedure they went through breaking their barrel in. Okay. Super helpful. Super helpful for sure. We want to take a moment within this episode to thank Weatherby. Weatherby has been helping us this entire series in building our backcountry rifles. Steve and I are both shooting the Weatherby Vanguard S2 Backcountry Edition. And when choosing a rifle, you know, we look at things like the stock and certainly look at specifications like the weight. But you also have to look at the engineering and the quality of design that aren't on the specification sheet. One thing I love about the Weatherby Vanguard series is the bolt. It's completely one piece, machined and fluted. It's been nothing but incredibly reliable in terms of feeding and extraction for me. And obviously cycling, working a bolt is important for shooting performance. And then also the machined one-piece bolt is a key component to accuracy and durability in the rifle. So check out the Weatherby Vanguard series 
at weatherby.com. Let's transition and talk a bit about some of those things that can make us more effective hunters. Um, you know, kind of at the end of the first episode, we we started getting into discussions just a bit, touching on um, things like shooting with angles uphill, downhill, you know, mentioned wind and things of that nature. And those are clearly important to hunters, especially, um, you know, guys hunting the backcountry, hunting mountainous terrain, as we often do, where we have, you know, potentially steep uphills, potentially steep downhills, or uh, essentially always dealing with the wind, it seems like. So let's take that first one of angles um, and just help us understand from a hunting perspective how we can essentially shoot more effectively with angles, um, where we go wrong when making shots um, that have angles involved. I mean, I, I think to dumb it down, so many of us rely on technology these days and go, oh, I have, you know, an angle compensating rangefinder. I'll just let it tell me what to do and make a normal shot. But I'm sure there's more to it from positioning, from understanding, um, you know, bullet trajectories, things like that. Help us begin to uh, understand it so that we don't make mistakes with angles. Well, you bring up a good point with technology. Of if you have an angle compensating rangefinder, you're already ahead of the curve here, so that's good. But relying on technology is dangerous, right? We've all had uh, dead batteries, rain, getting our gear, you know, things like that. I also want you to figure out what's going on when you're shooting. Is shooting at angles is and shooting in wind. Wow, that, that's a big one. But these these variables are what make the difference between a hit and a miss. So gravity is by far the biggest effect on a bullet as it leaves the barrel. The good news is, though, it's the easiest to account for. We know that effectively gravity is the same no matter where we're going hunting. It's slightly different, but not enough to worry about. Wind is the second biggest effect on the bullet, and it's the hardest to account for because it changes constantly. But, but angles is actually something we can tackle. So when you're shooting at an angle, the bullet is not falling as far as it would when you're shooting across flat ground. And that's true either uphill or downhill. That's actually one of the bigger points of contention I get from shooters. As they say, well, what if I'm shooting uphill? You, know, you told me how to shoot downhill at 30 degrees. What if I'm shooting uphill? Well, interestingly, to me at least, Uphill or downhill is irrelevant. The angle you're shooting is all that matters. So what's going to happen is, and I'll give you guys these notes. You guys can follow along in the show notes uh, to see this chart of, of, of angles or the compensation we need to make. But we need to go back to trigonometry. So high school math for most of us. And you need to realize that of the angles that are complementary to other angles, the one we're worried about here is the cosine. As you're listening to this podcast, Imagine me drawing a little bit of a hill on a whiteboard here. You're on the top of the hill, and you're shooting down the hill. And you want to figure out what difference you need to make on your elevation adjustment to be able to hit that animal. Well, first, you need to know what elevation adjustment you need to make across flat ground. So you need to know what you're normally going to do at 300 yards, for example, on a flat range to be able to change that for the angle. Well, once you're at that angle and you're up on that hill and you're shooting down and you used your laser rangefinder and you could tell the target was exactly 300 yards away from you, but you don't know what that 30 degree difference is going to make. Well, if you can imagine that hill that I drew and you know the downhill and the target's down below you, 
and a 30 degree difference. Well, the 30 degrees is off of center. So straight out, let's call that zero. And a little bit further down is 10 degrees, further down that's 20, then down to 30. Well, if you guys go out and try measuring what angle you're looking down or up at, you're probably going to overestimate. So most students I have way overestimate the angle. It's very hard to find more than a 30 degree difference in real life. So most dirt or just mountains or regular just terrain, the, there's this thing called the angle of repose. So sorry to get too geeky on you guys, but you ever driven by a construction site and you see a bunch of piles of dirt? Have you ever noticed that all those piles of dirt are, seem to be all about the same angle? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not because the construction workers were trying to make it the same angle, right? That's because the dirt naturally kind of sloughs off at that angle. So when it gets a certain height, it starts to fall off on its own and it makes that angle naturally. Well, that's called the angle of repose. And that angle is about 30 degrees naturally for just dirt. So when you go out and you look at a mountain range or you go look, watch an old uh, YouTube video of Bob Ross painting a mountain range, you're going to see that all the angles of all the hills tend to be about the same. That angle is probably 30 degrees. That's just how nature makes it. So when you see the what you would consider a naturally steep downhill angle, it's probably only about a 30-degree downhill angle. Now, 30 degrees, if you picture that original drawing I mentioned, so we're, we're drawing a hill, we're at the top of the hill, then the hill goes down, the target's down at the bottom of the hill. If I dropped a plumb bob from your position straight down, so on that whiteboard, I'm going to draw a dashed line straight down. And then I'm going to draw where that line intersects the target horizontally. So I'm going to draw a horizontal line all the way up to the target. What we end up doing is making a triangle. We, we end up making a line straight down from you up on top of the hill. We make a line straight across to the target. And then in between the target and you is that diagonal. So we're going to make the straight up and down, the straight horizontal, and that diagonal. Well, when we do that straight up and down, that straight horizontal triangle that we're drawing on the board there, it makes a right angle, that 90-degree angle. That perfect triangle that we're going to have, we can use what's called cosine. So it's one function of trigonometry to figure out what's going on here. So I will save you um, many minutes of discussion of trigonometry and just say that if you take the cosine of the angle that you're shooting at, you can figure out the actual distance. So what happens is, even though you're actually looking at the target a certain distance away, which is that diagonal part of the triangle, the horizontal part of the triangle is actually less. So did I already lose you guys verbally on that? Or do I need to be able to have to draw it out? No, I'm getting it. I mean, yeah, I mean, it might be hard to picture for some, but I completely understand what you're saying. That that bottom straight horizontal is going to be less than the distance of, you know, the end to end of the angle. Right. So we have the vertical, we have the horizontal, then the diagonal, the hypotenuse is what it's called, the diagonal. So the diagonal part of that triangle is the longest arm of that triangle. Okay, if we, we took that diagonal and laid it flat, it would be longer than the horizontal is. So what that tells us is that we need to treat the target like it's closer than it actually is. Because what happens is the bullet doesn't know that it's traveling the true distance to the target. Instead, it's only affected as, as much as it's traveling the distance across the earth, right? So we're worried about gravity when we're worried about the elevation of a bullet. So when we make an elevation adjustment on our scope, when I'm shooting 500 yards with my 308, for example, I come up 12 minutes of angle. 
Well, that's because I'm expecting 500 yards worth of gravity on my bullet. I'm shooting at an angle, even though I'm looking with my laser rangefinder straight down to the target across that diagonal, that hypotenuse. And again, we'll have a diagram for you guys in the show notes that shows I'm looking at a target 500 yards away. It's not covering 500 yards across the surface of the earth. It's actually covering a shorter distance across the surface of the earth. Well, the bullet only falls as much as it's covering that horizontal distance. So if we can figure out what the horizontal distance is, the problem is solved. But regardless, up or down, the actual distance across the earth that that bullet is covering is shorter than the distance we're actually looking. So the way we figure that out is the cosine. So we take the cosine of the angle we're looking and shoot that distance. So for example, the cosine of 30 degrees is 0.866. Well, that just means that about 86% of the distance that I'm actually looking is how I need to shoot that target. So if it's 500 yards, I take that 500 yards and multiply it or figure out what 86% of that distance is. And I pretend the target is only that far away, even though I can see it further away. Now, all that being said, I don't expect you guys to break out slide rules, calculators, uh, figuring out the actual angle if you need to. All you need to remember from this at a bare minimum is the bullet is going to behave as if the target were closer, which means if you don't compensate for the angle and you shoot at that deer at who knows how many yards away, either up or downhill, you're going to miss high because the bullet isn't going to realize it was really traveling that far. It's going to behave as if it only traveled that bottom horizontal distance of the triangle. So in a pinch situation, you don't have the time to break up that, that abacus and the slide rule. Just aim low. Aim at the bottom of the rib, rib cage of the deer, and you're going to be fine. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Are there certain other... Um either tips that you have for us or just advice for mistakes where you see things go wrong when it comes to uh, shooting at angles and how we position ourselves. So do guys tend to, you know, do this with their head position or body position or, you know, other things that might throw off shots or not be as accurate, um, you know, when they're shooting at an angle? I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> it's up to the individual, right? So it, it really is. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's, it, it's up to having an improper position for sure. Um, so when I talk about setting up the scope to your rifle properly, where you don't have any of that shadow around the scope, which is you know, that black ring, which is called scope shadow. Uh, let me back up for a second. When you guys shoot iron sights, when you shoot a handgun or you shoot a rifle with iron sights, most people know you have two different types of alignment. You have the sight alignment, which is the alignment between the rear sight and the front sight and sight picture, which is the alignment of the sights on the target. With a scope, everyone seems to focus on sight picture. They seem to focus on where the reticle is on the target, and they seem to forget the sight alignment. They seem to forget if the rifle is pointed in the right direction underneath them. What those black rings that you see around the scope are not a defect of manufacturing. They're on purpose. They're there looking straight through the scope. And if it's, you know, if it's crooked at all, it's going to let you know. So guys will have a problem shooting at angles when they ignore those black rings, when they think they just have a limited view through the scope and they think it's going to be fine anyway. I'm telling you now, if you see a black shadow on any direction of the scope, 
you're going to have problems and you're going to miss the target. So yes, not making sure you have the scope set up properly, not making sure you can see through it clearly is going to cause a problem. But when it comes to a hunting situation, if I have a prize bull or buck pop out and it's up or downhill, and I don't even know the distance because I'm so excited. I just saw the thing pop out. I, at a minimum, am not going to aim where I want to aim. I'm at a minimum going to going to aim a few inches low, regardless of the distance, because I know the bullet is going to strike higher than it would be if it was across fly ground. What about Ryan shooting, um, like say side hill, where you have like maybe within your sight picture you have an angle from left to right, right to left, um, and that throwing off sort of your balance of canting the rifle. Um, I, that, that's a big thing, you know, as, as we shoot in archery, we have right within our sight picture, most often, most of us should have a level to make sure we're not canting the bow. Um, and obviously as you're shooting, um, across sight hills and in mountainous terrain, it's, it's almost deceiving sometimes what is truly actually level up and down what's plumb. Does that come into play with rifles as much? Do you recommend things like you see some guys running an external level on their scope to make sure that they're not canting the rifle as they get set up? Is is that important in a hunting situation? It is clearly important to have your rifle true, you know, plumb, if you will, when you're shooting. Because everything you're seeing that happens in archery is also going to happen with the rifle. Yeah. I, mean, I know so we, talk, we actually talked about that in part yeah. one, like why it goes off if you're canting to one mm-hmm. end and it's you know because your aiming device is not you know it's above the bore it's above the bullet um right but i just you know is it would you recommend for hunters to have an external level or is there other you know tips that you would have for shooting in those situations where you have you know mountainous terrain anything like that i will admit something here <laughs> i don't have a bubble level on any of my rifles okay that's not to say you shouldn't have one. I might be the biggest hypocrite ever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> having the rifle canted clearly matters. I, I either am spoiled in that I'm I'm able to keep a rifle straight up and down when I shoot, or I'm just completely hypocritical and I don't do it at all. My problem with the external mobile levels is I've yet to find one that I couldn't reach down with my hands and wiggle myself. So most guys will have these bubble levels. I can reach over and go, hey, yeah, check that thing out. That's pretty cool. And I can wiggle it with my fingers. And I can ask them how well they're actually able to notice a degree of difference with that bubble level when I can move it so easily with my fingers. Mm. Because at 1,000 yards, a degree of difference is all the world. Matter of fact, there's an argument that says even if you have a bubble level, the amount of difference in that bubble level that's discernible in the human eye Mm is greater than the difference it's going to take to cause a mess. So why even have one in the first place? So I think they're a neat tool. It's definitely important to have your rifle true up and down, but we're talking hunting. I mean, what distance are we talking about shooting here, guys? What what are you thinking? Well, that's obviously up to the listener, but, you know, if we said, um, you know, what's long range or mid range for some say like between four and 600 yards where, you know, I would theorize that at that range, it could begin to matter. You're right. And so accuracy is a, a stacking proposition, meaning it is a, I, I picture accuracy of a rifle, of ammunition, of the shooter, of all these things in a cone. Okay. So I picture a certain cone of accuracy for the ammo. And then 
it all stacks or, or adds, if you will. So if, if the ammo can have a half minute, but the rifle is only a minute, cap- you know, capable of a minute of accuracy, we're now expanded to a minute and a half. It all stacks. It's always your you weakest know? link, right? Right. Well, not only the weakest link, it all adds onto itself, mm-hmm. right? So if that rifle can shoot that one minute every single time, but I give ammo that might be up to a half minute off, well, there's going to be sometimes I'm going to be a minute and a half away from where I'm aiming. Mm-hmm. You know, a minute for the rifle, half minute for the ammo, and the shooter is only a minute of angle shooter. Now we're two and a half minutes away, and, you know, worst possible scenario, everything adds up to the right, we're going to be that far to the right. You know, the worst possible scenario, everything adds up to the left, we're going to be that far to the left. So, yes, it all it all can add up. Um, to your question, though, if I'm shooting at, a, at an elk on a 30-degree slope to the side, am I going to be breaking out my calculator and doing math? No. I'm going to be worried about my rifle being straight up and down because the bullet has no idea how level the ground upon which the target is standing. Yeah. But if I'm shooting up or downhill, yes, now it matters because gravity is not pulling perpendicular to the bullet. It's either pulling with the bullet falling or with the bullet climbing. And that, that's actually going to make a difference I, I can measure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing I've always thought too with those, um, you know, scope mounted bubble levels is unlike shooting with archery where the, the bubble web, bubble is essentially within your sight picture. I mean, you might not be choosing to focus on it, but it's right there. You don't have to make any sort of head movement clearly with, uh, the reticle and you got your head perfectly positioned behind the scope. If you want to check your level at that point, you now need to move, you need to move your head, you need to lose position, things of that nature. So unless you have the time to like, get your rifle perfectly in position, have some sort of rest, can check your level and then get behind the scope. It seems um, like it could be burdensome to have both. I, I think you're right for sure. At least it's going to take your focus off of what you should be looking at, yeah. which is the target. Yeah. yeah. So this all comes back to dry practicing, you know, getting behind your rifle without ammo and practicing just over and over and over. I mean, without a doubt, I shoot any particular rifle I have more dry without ammo in it than I do with ammo. Mm. To this day, I, I still do that. To, to my level of shooting, I will practice with that gun empty way more than I practice that gun live. Something you can't do with archery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. But thankfully, with archery, you don't have ammunition. <laughs> right, you can go walk down and get your arrows back, hopefully. Right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, so part of it is just familiarity. I will pick up people's rifles constantly and say, hey, you ever notice your rifle, your scope looks a little to the left? And they say, no, I don't know. I thought about that. And they look at it again and go, well, I'll be damned. You're right. So I don't know if it's just experience or maybe I'm fortunate, but I can tell when a rifle, you know, reticle is canted left or right. If you wonder if you can get a bubble level in your scope that's going to help, get one. By, by all means, you don't have to use it. Right. You know, you, you're going to be you have to carry it up and down a mountain, but a bubble level is not going to add much weight. So if you're worried about it, rather than debate anybody about whether a bubble level in the scope matters, I'd rather just say, go get one. Knock yourself out. Yeah. You know? If it works, uh, it works. Right. You're more likely to miss, hands down, more likely to miss by misjudging the distance. Hmm. Okay. So okay, unstable form. Yeah. So, you know, after that, maybe the wind, you know, those four variables are going to matter by feet. Having the angle wrong, you know, left to right is going to matter by inches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wind is something that I want to get into and I know we can dedicate a whole show to this alone. 
Um, you know, and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of factors here, you know, obviously different bullets are going to be affected by wind differently and there's different tools to read the wind and things of that nature. But just again, to, to focus in on, on what we're doing with hunting, hunting distances, trying to field judge wind without, you know, the aid of, you know, target shooters having flags or other devices, what can you tell us that can help us as hunters on how to read the wind, understand what the wind might do to our bullet downrange, and then compensate so that we have accuracy? So you're, you're right. Great question. If, if it weren't for wind, everybody could be a sniper. That was a saying I used to say is, is that is the unknown variable that's hard to master. And if I could ever analogize something to the matrix, if you guys have seen that movie is you start to shoot and you're starting to learn how to do things. It looks like these just bunch of numbers out there and you can't figure out what's going on. You're doing formulas with your calculator. You can't figure out the wind. And eventually someday it'll just click and you can actually see the wind and you can figure out what your bolt's going to do. So I don't think anymore. I'm fortunate. I don't think anymore in miles per hour. I don't think in minutes of angle. I don't think in mills. I just kind of look at the wind with a certain caliber and I know about how far I'm going to go left or right, but you're right. And hunting you don't need to get to that level. And I also don't want you breaking out a calculator. I also don't want you breaking out, you know, math on what's going to happen because what's most important for your hunt is getting the animal. It's not, it's not figuring out exactly what the wind is. So I will leave you with the simplest advice and I hope not to, uh, to uh, let you down on how simple this advice is. But if the wind is blowing from the left to the right, so much so that you can tell it's blowing. So maybe that's three miles an hour, five miles an hour, seven miles an hour. Who cares how many miles per hour the wind is blowing? If you can tell on your cheek or because of the grass or the leaves that the wind is blowing left to right and you aim in the center of the kill zone, you're wrong. So the bullet's going to be affected by the wind. Without getting into the calculations, we don't even care how much. We just know, just trust me that that bullet will be affected by the wind. Trust me that you're shooting at 300 yards and the wind is perceptibly blowing from left to right, that the bullet is not going to strike exactly where you're aiming. It's going to strike somewhere to the right. The wind is going to blow it somehow, whether it's a half an inch or whether it's six inches, it's going to blow it right. So if you line up on that bull, in the center of the kill zone at 300 yards with that wind blowing left to right, shame on you. You might as well, and I keep saying on the kill zone because I, I leave it up to you to decide where the acceptable aiming zone on that, that bull is. You, know, you might be happy with a pie plate size target. Great. Let's just call that the target now. Not the whole elk, right? Aim small, miss small. The only thing you're worried about is that kill zone. Aiming in the center is it, it, futile. You, you know it's the bullet's either going to hit exactly where you're aiming or it's going to aim it's going to hit to the right of where you're aiming. So why not aim to the left edge of the kill zone? At the very least, the wind dies the second you pull the trigger. There's no more wind anymore. At the very least, if that happens, you're still going to hit the left edge of the kill zone, which is, by the way, you are the one that decided that's an acceptable area to, for a bullet to hit. That's called a win. That's called a good hunt. But you give yourself at least the entire width of the kill zone now for the wind to blow the bullet into. If you aimed at the center, 
you're just erasing the entire left half of the kill zone without even having to know what the wind does. So that's the simplest advice ever is forget everything I want to talk about wind and instead just realize if you know what's going left to right, don't you ever aim in the center. At the very least, aim on the left edge of the kill zone, which you are the one, again, that defined as an acceptable spot for the ball to hit because now you've guaranteed you're either hitting where you wanted to aim or you're going to allow the wind to blow up all the way into the whole kill zone. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes all kinds of sense. So just out of curiosity, so we I've got a 270 coming. I got a wolf in my sight at 500 yards, and it's like a 15-mile-an-hour wind. Are you talking 10 inches or 5 feet? Yeah. Well, you're talking, yeah, 10 to 15 inches at that distance. 10 to 15 inches? Okay. Now, I'm guessing I gave you a huge range there because I don't know what a 270 does. <laughs> I don't own a 270. <laughs> I don't think I've ever shot a 270. Okay. Um you know, so for a first off, fifteen mile an hour wind is, is a serious wind, right? Or right. Yeah, wind is a yeah it's wind. Uh, blowing across the canyon. Wolf's on the other side. Yeah, right. Twenty okay. miles an hour. I'm just going to go home. <laughs> 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 you know, it's, it's time to call it a day. Um, so yeah, at five hundred yards, you're easily talking. You can't tell here where I'm holding out my hands. You can go up to a couple feet easily. Okay. You know, five feet I think is is a little much. Because the 270 is a little quick, it's going to get out there. So let's talk about why the bullet affects the wind. So the, the why wind affects the bullet. Apologies, wind affects the bullet largely as a function of how long it has to act on the bullet. Okay, so let's ignore for a second the the, the mass, the diameter of the bullet, the uh, aerodynamic efficiency, the shape of the bullet. The biggest factor is literally how long it has to affect the bullet. Okay, so if it has two seconds worth of wind to affect the bullet, it's going to affect that bullet twice as much as a bullet that only has one second to affect. Okay, so if you can imagine like an air nozzle from an air compressor, and as you shot the bullet, someone running along the side of the bullet as it flies in the air with that air nozzle from the air compressor, if you give it a blast from that air compressor for one second, it's only going to blow so far. If you give it, however, a blast from that nozzle for two seconds, it's going to blow at least twice as far. Does that make sense? Yeah. So faster bullets. Some people say, well, I got this. I got a certain caliber. I got the new G-Biz wing you know, cartridge. I want to shoot. It's so much better. And it bucks wind so much better. Well, really, the reason one cartridge will buck, meaning it will be not affected by wind, it'll, it'll go to the target easier than another cartridge, is literally how long it takes. So if you can get to the target twice as fast, you're going to be affected by the wind half as much because it only had one second of time exposed to a 10 mile an hour wind, where another bullet might have two seconds of time affected by a 10 mile an hour wind. So velocity does not mean more accurate. Most people, when they first get in the long range, think that a faster bullet or a longer barrel means more accurate. That is not true. Matter of fact, it's the opposite of true. A shorter barrel and a slower bullet sometimes can be more accurate, ironically. So short barrels can sometimes be more accurate than long barrels, but it's going to make the bullet slower. And by being slower, it's going to get affected by that wind for a longer amount of time going to the same target. So when you're asking about your 270, what you're really asking is how fast your bullet is. So you and I at the range together, I'm shooting my 308 and you're shooting your 270. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be affected by wind more than you are. 
And it's not because of some aerodynamic efficiency of our bullet. It's just your bullet's going to get there quicker than mine is. So it didn't have as long to get blown off the target as, as mine did. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, so um, there are formulas out there to calculate the wind, and they're all wrong. Every <laughs> single person that has come to me with a formula or ballistic calculator for wind has always, always had to adjust or what some people call true or, or modify their variable for wind. The best you can do for wind is figure out which direction it's affecting your bullet and by about how much and just learn from there what your gut or, or what's going to happen if you're rifling your bullet. Um, even when you learn when I went to SODIC, which is the Special Operations Sniper School, they give you a variable for figuring out the wind effect on a 308. And in that mathematical formula, they had a constant. And that constant changed depending on the distance, which is not a constant. <laughs> so <laughs> even that formula, they admitted, you know, in, in the formula itself didn't work, you know, for the wind. So wind is very, very hard. The best way to get better at wind is go shoot it. You know, when it's windy outside and you think it's a bad day to go shoot, fight that urge and actually go shoot and go see what that wind does. And you need mm-hmm. to focus on all the wind. So stop focusing on the wind where you're at. So when people have wind meters and they pull out these wind meters and they try and figure out this, you know, insanely, you know, accurate calculation on, on the wind speed. It, it's not accurate. It's what I call giggle, right? It's garbage in, garbage out. It's you take this formula or this wind speed that you think is, is very precise and you put it into this formula to figure out where your bullet's going to hit and you shoot and you end up missing and you can't figure out why. Well, the reason why is the wind all the way to the target matters. So the wind speed at your, your position, let's say it's going 10 miles an hour left to right. Great. When you're shooting across a canyon to a 500-yard wolf, the wind speed in the middle might actually be not only a different speed, but it might be a different direction. Mm-hmm. You might have the wind going right to left halfway between you and the target, and then again at the target left to right. So by only pulling on a wind meter and doing a calculation where you're at, you're, you're not even going to be close to the target. You need to look at all the wind. So that that's the uh, another question I get asked is which wind matters most at you at the target or halfway in between? The answer is none. It all matters. So the wind at you is going to affect the bullet. Now, the wind that you have at you is going to affect the bullet very little off its original path, and that's because the bullet is going so fast. It's not because there's some inertia behind the bullet. It's just because it, it was exposed to the bullet for a very little amount. However, that little amount that you affect at your barrel is going to translate into a huge amount of the target, right? So barely off its path up front ends up being a big difference in the path at the target and vice versa. At the target, even though there's a lot of wind and the bullet's going slower at the target, it might actually move the bullet more at the target it's going to have a not as big of a result because the bullet's already there, so it's not going to take off. So the answer is it all matters, and you need to sit back and, and take it all into account, and that's impossible to cover in just one conversation on how it can all affect it. But if you have a spotting scope, especially if you have a spotting scope, look at the target and adjust your focus on the spotting scope back two-thirds of the way to the target. This is if you have no other experience with the wind. So focus on the target. Find something two-thirds of the way from you to the target and focus on that instead. 
and then continue looking at the target. And what you're going to see is a bunch of heat waves and mirage. And that's how you're going to tell wind when you're actually hunting. You're not going to be able to tell by grass or by branches or by anything like that, because it's going to change no matter where you are. You know, how thick the branches are, how dry the grass is. Mm-hmm. What you are going to be able to see is the heat waves in the air. And this works in snow. This works out in Arizona where I was born. This, this works everywhere. You will actually see the heat waves in a spotting scope, especially if you focus at two-thirds of the distance. And if those heat waves are going straight up and down, we call it mirage. It's straight up and down, we call it a boiling mirage because it looks just like boiling water. Then you call that a zero-effect wind. doesn't matter what the wind's doing. But if it's blowing at about a 45-degree angle, either left or right, you have about a five-mile-per-hour wind. And I'll give you guys some of the charts if you'd like to share for how to calculate the wind speed off a five-mile-hour wind. Once that mirage is going close to horizontal, not quite, but close to horizontal, you're talking about a 10-mile-an-hour wind. And once it's truly horizontal, especially when it's not very wavy, when it's very smooth lines, horizontal left and right, you're talking greater than 10-mile-an-hour wind. And you can use that focusing two-thirds of the way of the target, looking at the angle of the mirage, to get a ballpark estimate on what the wind's going to do to your bullet. <laughs> Great tip. Yeah, that's super fascinating. So obviously bullet weight comes into effect of wind drift, correct? Absolutely. And to think about it, going back to my, my uh, you know, nozzle, my air nozzle from my air compressor, you know, analogy, you know, you, you blow a BB versus blowing a, a, a shot put weight. <laughs> One's going to blow easier than the other. So yeah, a heavier bullet is going to be harder to move off of its original path than a lighter okay. bullet for sure. But I guess it's probably also moving slower, so it can be affected longer by the wind. Exactly right. So two two three, for example, is screaming through the air, but the slightest wind will move it off its path. You know, so you're shooting. You know, for example, some guys like the seventeen HMR. You know, for shooting. You know, small varmints. If if a butterfly sneezes, that seventeen HMR is going off its path. <laughs> The good news is, even when it's knocked off its path, it's getting the target so fast, it doesn't have very long to get knocked off its path, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, a 30 caliber 300 wind mag in the same wind as a 223 Remington is going to be moved way less by the wind, even though it took longer to get to the target because it was so much heavier. Gotcha. So I, I wish I could give you guys a... Just universal rule here, but I, I can't. It, even if I could give you a chart for every single caliber or cartridge, it still is going to be useless until you and your rifle and your eyeball get out there and shoot. You, so let's say I could give you a five mile an hour per hour, a five mile per hour uh, rule for every cartridge. The reason that's useless is every single one of us is going to disagree on what a five mile per hour window looks like. Yeah. Right? So I, I can't quantify that. You know, if you're looking for your scope and I look 200 yards away and I say, see that grass? That looks about five miles per hour to me. It might not look that way to you. So the true answer here is just get out and shoot in realistic conditions. And if, if this applies to the last podcast, I hope it does, is stop going to a 100-yard range and zeroing your rifle and calling it a day. Get to random distances get to random positions and realistic field conditions and shoot and figure out what it's going to be like. You know, I can never give you guys a formula on how much to lead 
your friend in your backyard game of football. You know, when he's running out and doing a button hook to the left, I can't tell you how to calculate how fast he's running and how far in front of him to throw the football. <laughs> but if you practice it enough times, you're going to know how far in front of him to throw the football so it lines up and hits him. But even if I gave you the formula, again, you're not going to be able to stop and all that play and break out your calculator, and we're all not going to agree on how many miles per hour he's running. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And don't even get me started on, let's say, the animals moving along with the wind. Now you have additive and subtractive <laughs> variables. Very Double negatives and, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So that, it's also some guys will have some of these, you know, absolute truths on, well, if you, for every thousand feet of elevation you go up, you need to come down this many minutes. Well, first off, that's not true, right? So uh, mm. do we have time to go into air density or weather or should we save that for another time yeah i think the whole nother topic but you know huh. yeah it gets into it's not the elevation per se but it's you know the air pressure right right yeah i hesitate doing do i apologies already for going off so much on no no it's all <laughs> been good no. yeah it, it's as you can tell I'm, I'm biting my tongue a little bit as i want to get into some stuff but i kind of don't and i'm hoping i'm finding a happy medium in between no, you're you're good. It's been great and incredibly helpful. Um, obviously, we are coming up on time. I'm I'm just curious, and this you know this might open up a big door again, Ryan. But out of anything, you know, thinking back through this episode and the previous episode we recorded, are there any other big takeaways? Any other you know just like must have pieces of advice? Any other like low hanging fruit that would make a big difference for us to be more effective in the field as hunters behind our rifles. Anything? Yes. Mind? Focusing on the reticle mm -hmm. and practicing on your own with an empty rifle. I mean, truly practicing. I would take, take angles out of it, take wind out of it, even distance. I'm probably overstating it to make a point. If the average hunter that I met was just happened to have his dad's hunting rifle or a rifle he bought from Cabela's and he doesn't really know his way around it, if they spent most of their time shooting at a target or shooting at an animal, focusing only on the reticle and not the animal, and practicing with the rifle empty, even in their backyard, they would be so much further ahead in their ability to shoot than they would worrying about the barometric pressure or what angle they're shooting at relative to the Earth's gravity. Yeah. They really would. Yeah. I think we, we touched a bit on the reticle um, in the first episode, which I found super helpful for sure. I'd love to hear advice. And we've we talked about, I think we mentioned the first episode, it's been mentioned in this one, about that dry fire practice, shooting it when empty. Um, what does that look like? What should we be doing? What should we be focusing on when we're doing that uh, empty gun practice? So forgive the terminology, but if the gun goes click, <laughs> if, they, if the gun would have gone bang and the reticle didn't move, then you need to trust the gun's going to hit where the reticle was. So once it's zero, once the scope is set up for you, and you get into your practicing, because you can't practice beforehand. you got to get it set up right. But once you get it set up, you need to know that that bullet is going to impact exactly where that reticle was. So when you're in your house, when you're in your backyard, when you put up a, a playing card, a piece of masking tape with a, a Sharpie magic marker dot on it, whatever you're aiming at, 
and you're focusing on that reticle and you put pressure on that trigger, consistent steady pressure, and the gun goes click and the reticle doesn't move, I guarantee that's a hit. That's all you need to worry about. And you need to have the confidence and faith in your rifle system that it's going to work. Now, if you make that gun go click and the gun jerks and wiggles or moves at all, well, conversely, that's a miss. So you need to work over and over and over until you can make that gun go click and the reticle not move at all. And then fool yourself into thinking that the gun is empty, even when it's loaded in real life, and do the exact same thing, and you will literally be leaps and bounds above any amount of geeking out about your twist rate and ballistic coefficient and, and air density than you'll ever be. Because if I can get you to worry about all that stuff, but you still don't know how to shoot properly, we're both going to waste our time. So if I'm in my living room and I'm practicing this and it is wiggling, what are some steps to take? What am I doing wrong? Am I, you know, what, what would you suggest? How can you self-diagnose? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the worst advice I can give you. I'm sorry. Is <laughs> do it until you don't do it. Um, <laughs> so that is such a fundamental part. It's kind of like saying, I'm just saying, pull the trigger without moving the reticle. And there's no better way to get good at that than just doing it. Because that is so fundamental. I, I, I lack the ability to break that down simpler for you guys. Mm-hmm. Is do it over and over till it happens. I mean, eventually, I'm, I'm talking within 100 times. If you can't do this within 100 times, then by all means, email me and I'll, I'll, I'll either figure out a way to get you there or I'll ask you to stop shooting. <laughs> um, within 100 attempts of aiming at a piece of map, will. I've never seen somebody that can't do it within 100 attempts get that gun to go click without that reticle moving. You'll be able to do it. So any other trick I can give you, what I call a dime washer drill, which is you literally take a dime or a, you know, a small washer and you balance it on your barrel. And then you make the gun go click and try and do that without the dime or the washer falling. You know, all those are tips and tricks that I'm going to have you do when you're in certain positions after you figure out how to do it in the prone first. So well within 100 efforts, you're going to be able to make the gun go click without that reticle moving. Okay. And if you can't, again, that's just, you have, um, you need to go to your, your physician for a diagnosis on your motor control, or you just might not be a shooter. Uh, you're going to get there. The <laughs> hard part special. is going to be, yeah, the hard part is going to be getting into the kneeling position and doing the same thing. And that's when I'll ask you to do something like what I call that dime washer drill. You know, that's when you're going to put a dime on your barrel and you're going to practice over and over, making the gun go click without that dime falling off the barrel. And that's going to be what I would consider a drill, you know, to get you better at what you're doing. But you should be able to, in a very stable position, uh, make that happen. Okay. Okay. Great, Ryan. Um, and one last thing, guys. Yeah. When you're out the range and you can't do that anymore, have a buddy with you and bring a dummy around with you. Even if it's a piece of brass, if you have the money, buy an actual dummy round of ammunition and have your buddy load your rifle and not tell you where the dummy round is. And as you shoot through the rifle of ammo, you're gonna find the dummy round. And when you go click and you're gonna jerk the reticle all over the place, that's gonna look, it's, only, it's not gonna teach you to be better, but it's gonna be a clue that lets you know you're not doing it right. So you can go back and practice. Yeah. This is great, Ryan. Um, it's just so appreciate you and sharing this information in both episodes. Um, I think I'll, like myself, I'm, I'm anxious to continue to learn about it. Um, just 
you know, I'm not saying this to be at all salesy, but it's more of like, I have so many more questions and want to suck up more info. It are a lot of, you know, these issues to continue to learn about them addressed in your book. Is that something that you would recommend to continue to learn, you know, a, what we've covered, but B beyond. And then more of what we've covered is, you know, what I guess, give us, uh, um, some highlights or an overview of what's covered in your book and how that might apply to our audience and myself. Well, I, I definitely appreciate the sales salesiness if, if there is any. Um, <laughs> I just want to know if it's worth picking up one more. chapter at all. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, if any of your readers, this will be guaranteed to any of your, your listeners out there, sorry, not readers, buy my book. And if you don't think it was a value add, tell me, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> I, I've, I've been very fortunate of the positive feedback I've had. But yes, for example, when we talk about wind, we have not explored yet the one of 20 chapters that are in the book on wind or or on angle shooting or things like that. So it is, it is a handbook. It is trying to get you on the right path. It is definitely an introductory book though. It is just talking about the basic fundamentals you need to worry about. As you can tell, I focus a lot on you guys getting out and practicing, you know, and actually dry firing, actually shooting at targets. Um, I think it's helpful. I hope your, your listeners will think as well. Well, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm not sure that we're going to have an update here. Uh, we're taking off for Alaska soon. We'll have plenty to cover when we get back. But until then, we might be a week or two gap here on the podcast. So hope you guys' hunting seasons are going well. Send us an email to podcast at exomontgear.com if you've got some cool stories or photos to share. Happy hunting.